Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Inflation-adjusted interest rates, and that does fold over to real estate. And our Shanali Basic knows it has a modicum to do with a company named Blackstone. And she is with Jonathan Gray this morning. Shanali? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Tom. John, thank you for joining us as the president and COO of Blackstone. You are coming off what you're calling your best quarter in your 36-year history. Now, records are very hard to keep beating. What do you tell your investors about where you go from here and how you squeeze out that next leg of growth? Well, Shanali, it's great to be with you. I'll just stop for a moment and talk about the quarter because it's nice to focus on it. We really delivered for our customers. We had nearly record appreciation in our funds. Uh, we had extraordinary fundraising and for our shareholders, record fee-related and distributable earnings. And what's driving that, I'd say, is a couple things. First off is where we focused in terms of investing really thematically uh, some areas like global logistics, software and technology, the travel recovery out of COVID, all of those have done quite well. You saw that in the quarter. And the second thing I'd note is we continue to expand what our business is about, who we invest for, where we invest. We're moving more and more in core plus real estate and infrastructure, direct lending. Um, and we're also uh, serving more clients. We're serving more institutions, retail, insurance, and we've described it as a ship that's been operating in a narrow channel moving to open water. So it was a great quarter for us, and we're excited about what we can do more for our clients. Now, John, a lot of this has also come from fund realization, or, you know, investment realization. You've said you've been selling assets as well as uh, investing in them. Now, is it getting harder to invest at these valuations and with all of the choppiness we're starting to see in the markets? Well, it's certainly trickier as values move up to deploy capital. Uh, the good news is we have some competitive advantages. One is we operate in almost all our businesses at very large scale. So this year, we've done something like 13 public to privates that we've been invested in. Uh, that's a real competitive advantage given size. The breadth of our platform continues to expand, as I noted before. That helps us a lot. So many of our large investments were in our newer areas. And then again, what we're trying to do is find interesting areas in some of these thematic neighborhoods that we love where we can buy in at a more favorable price. So we bought in India an automotive parts company several years ago that had at that time a very small EV business, but we saw huge potential. We invested in that considerably. The company's called Sona Comstar. That company has gone public, hugely successful investment. We've made something like 15 times our investors' capital because we found a really great company that people didn't realize was an on-theme investment. And we're doing that this quarter again in the um, uh, garage door opener business with a company called Chamberlain, which owns the LiftMaster brand. It's a play on the housing recovery that's happening, as well as e-commerce and access to homes, which makes so much sense through the garage. So I would say our response to a high price market is try to buy things we like 
but do it in a little bit of one derivative off or where we find value in those areas. And that's the real challenge. Do you agree with some of the competitors that you have in the banking industry? Some of, uh, you know, the, James Gorman over at Morgan Stanley, John Waldron over at Goldman Sachs. Do you believe that they have it right when it comes to inflation, that perhaps there are many who are undercounting how much of an issue it's becoming? Yes, I would agree that inflation is definitely becoming more pervasive, more persistent than people had hoped. Uh, and I think that's happening for a couple of reasons. One is money supply has grown really significantly by more than a third since COVID, which happened monetary fiscal response to the crisis, but it puts more money in the system. And then at the same time, we have some big structural shortages. So in housing, we've right. been building for, yeah, we've been building 40% fewer homes than we did in the past. We've been investing a lot less in energy, yeah. of course, um, for that, you know, because we're trying to balance that out in terms of green sustainability and so forth. And we've seen fewer people in the workforce. Right. So go ahead. Sorry, so, Tom. Jonathan, I, I want to get away from the CEO speak and talk about the structural solution here and weakness. You came out of the University of Pennsylvania, the year of Bill Clinton. You're a card carrying fide Democrat. You've been hugely charitable. You're an icon across the nation for charity. Help the Democratic Party now with some charity. How do you guys put the progressives and the moderates together? What's the gray formula? Wow, um, that is a big assignment. Well, we're going to do it in 30 seconds, so go. Yeah, sorry, go. So I think it's where there are shared objectives. You know, I think there are things where you could say, how can we help people in lower and middle income areas and do things that drive the economy and drive opportunity for them? So immigration would be one where I think we can help the economy. We can help a lot of people. Ideally, we can bring people out of the shadows. Housing would be another area where if we built more housing, that could drive you know, down the cost of rental housing and, and buying homes for lots of people. I think in a green energy context, building housing would help a lot. Education, more investment, doing more in vocational schools, community schools, uh, in order to help people. What I want to do is create more opportunity. I think the debate in the Democratic Party is about whether we should fundamentally change the system we have or should we give more opportunity to people who have less opportunities themselves today? And I vote with that second camp, which is I think we have a powerful system that creates incredible companies, but more people need access to it. My wife and I created a program, New York City Kids Rise, in order to give low-income children in John, New York City the John, opportunity to save. You underplay yeah. yourself. You're buying a building in northern Manhattan in hard cash to build the Gray Elementary School, right? We, we help support Harlem Village Academies. It's certainly something that's important to us. We named it after my grandfather, Leon Gray, who believed a lot in education, the opportunity it created. And we do want to help as many people as possible. And I think that debate that you touch on, Tom, is so important because there is a solution where we can bring more people into the system, give them more opportunity, and still keep the, you know, the energy and power of our economic system to create 
lots of jobs and wealth. John, that's where I wanted to go, this idea of pairing some of the social objectives with the financial objectives of the Democratic Party. We've heard from them this desire to change the composition of the Fed in large part because of the oversight of Wall Street. And I do wonder, from your vantage point of a $731 billion firm that's expanding into an industry that typically has been private and not regulated as tightly, what do you expect and hope to see on that front? Well, as, as it relates to our firm, I would say we, we are regulated, certainly, uh, in lots of different ways. And we take that, the responsibility, the transparency, how we operate is really, really important. I think the difference between us and large financial firms, banks, is uh, they're highly levered, right? They operate at 10 to 15 times leverage. Uh, they also have access to the Fed window and their depositors are guaranteed. None of that exists in our private, you know, in our business managing capital for third parties. So we are regulated, but it is a different type of regulation. Our activities are different. And I would just say generally today, Mm -hmm. I think the financial system in the U.S. is as healthy as I've seen. Uh, The banks have a lot of capital. There is really good oversight in markets. We're not seeing big excesses Mm -hmm. out there. John, uh, real quick here. I know this big year for succession on Wall Street. A lot of your peers have turned over the ranks at the top. Do you have a timeline over at Blackstone for taking the lead? No. We, we feel pretty good about God, what's happening rude. with Blackstone. <laughs> that was so <laughs> rude. I didn't He'll mean, give it to I us next time. No, 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 no. I, I would say this. Look, we, we, uh, we have a really good setup here. Uh, Steve Schwarzman is an amazing leader, visionary business person. And I can tell you, somebody who's worked with him now for 30 years, uh, it's an incredible yeah. gift for me and to, the others. So we're sticking with our approach. To be a fly on the wall when Gray and Schwarzman go at it on politics. That must be <laughs> something. Jonathan Gray, thank you so much thank for joining you. us with a small real estate startup firm, Blackstone, this morning. <laughs> Nordvig joins us now, founder and CEO of Exante Data. Jens, let's just start with this. I had a conversation recently with PIMCO about the shape of this cycle. Can you walk me through why this one's going to be different, if you do indeed think it will be? I think we can already see that it's a totally different cycle, right? So the recession lasted a couple of months rather than uh, typically several years, right? So everything is, is moving at a turbo kind of pace. And uh, really, the, what is so different about this cycle is, is not just the type of the shock. Obviously, a pandemic shock is, is normal, like it's different from a normal business cycle shock, but it's also the policy response, like just the incredible strength of, of both monetary, but what was really unusual is just the size of the fiscal impulse we have had. And, and not only is the fiscal impulse huge, it's also the stigma associated with using fiscal policy very aggressively has been kind of removed. And that means that maybe we'll get more of it going forward. We're already discussing additional steps in the U.S., right, even though we've had such a big push already. So it's a totally different cycle. Like, we used to have essentially only monetary policy driving the stimulus for a multi-year period, right? And now, finally, fiscal policy has stepped on the gas. And it's been enough to really change inflation expectations. And Look around the world. Like, it's not just in the U.S. we have inflation that is on the move. It's everywhere. And we even have a bunch of central banks that are, like, feeling kind of behind and have to catch up. So we have EM central banks that deliver 100 or even more basis points in one go. And they were saying a couple of months ago that they would be on zero for a long time. 
We have the UK where we thought they were going to be in zero for a long time, and now expectations they're going to hike next month. Yeah, things are moving really, really fast. Jens, the consequences of this shift are basically uh, disagreed upon pretty dramatically, depending on who you speak to. Some people are saying it means shorter and hotter cycles. Other people mean say that it means pretty much flattened out cycles with no credit cycle whatsoever because central bankers have their backs. What's your view? So I think I think one point that is really important to make is that the market has this perception from the experience over the last 10 years that as soon as the central bank hikes rates by 50 basis points, 100 points, something very moderate, the economy can't take it. I think we have to be very careful there because what happened over the last 10 to 15 years was that the global economy is going to weak. And it wasn't necessarily that the rate-sensitive sectors got damaged by those rate hikes. There were other things going on that meant that the central bank had to stop. So how far the central bank can go is a totally open question, right? So, for example, in the UK now, the market is convinced that the UK economy can only take 100 basis points and then they will have to cut again, right? That's a really big question. And I think for a number of countries around the world, the economy can take a great deal more than 100 basis points. Jens, you've got industry-leading work with Exante on COVID. And do you today, with your wonderful must-read releases on Twitter, you focus on cases. I'm focusing on a really ugly country-by-country -country flow. The Guardian emphasizes Bulgaria, Latvia in lockdown, and John Farrell's briefing me on the United Kingdom. Are we ready for another global set of lockdowns? So um, we look at cases, we look at hospitalizations, we look at fatalities, right? We have to look at the whole picture. And clearly we're in a part of the cycle where just the cases is going to give a different picture about how severe this is relative to previous waves, right? Because they do not translate into hospitalizations in the same degree. But that said, if, if you look at what's going on right now, uh, you're right that there's some spikes in Eastern Europe. So I'll give you an anecdote. Um, a couple of months ago, Romania sold uh, their vaccines to Denmark, which is the country I'm born in, uh, because they didn't want to use them themselves, right? So there's some countries where the vaccination rates are very low still, and they're going to have issues in the winter. Then there's a different group of countries where we have very, very high vaccination rates, where presumably the hospital pressure will be very, very much lower than previous cycles. So we're going to have pockets of winter waves that are concentrated in the places where they are way behind on the vaccinations. And I think from an economic perspective, you're going to find that this wave that we potentially are facing now is going to be having much, much less of an impact than any of the previous ones. Jens, we hope so. We hope so. Thank you, sir. As always, Jens Nordvik there welcome. of Exante Data. to frame up and see what has changed. We do that with the chief U.S. economist at PIMCO. Tiffany Wilding joins us this morning. Tiffany, in your orbit, in your Excel spreadsheet, what have you changed in the last week or what are you really focusing on that's subject to change? Well, I, I think, um, and first of all, thanks for having me. Um, but, but I think what we're seeing is um, that the economy actually is reaccelerating 
after this summer period, summer soft patch, as a result of, you know, rising cases associated with this new uh, Delta variant, rising cases of COVID-19, we are starting to see as those case counts are going down, um, a pickup in uh, spending across leisure and travel services industries. And, you know, we're talking about the labor market this morning because the claims data just came out. It does suggest to us that you are going to see a reacceleration in the labor market as well. And we expect jobs in October, uh, net job gains to, to start to pick up when we finally get that report in a couple of weeks. You know, so we do see some really encouraging signs that the economy is reaccelerating. You know, and again, this makes us, uh, you know, more confident that, um, you know, monetary policy can kind of get on, get on with this tapering business right. that we expect in November and, and, and we can um, continue to recover from this pandemic. Will the Fed be surprised by nominal and inflation adjusted wage growth? Um, well, so, you know, I think that we've had a couple of, you know, just in, in terms of high frequency data over the last couple of months, we've had a couple of very strong uh, wage uh, gains with, that are that have been reported in, in the official statistics. You know, we think that maybe there's a little bit of noise in that um, and that you actually could see the wage data uh, moderate a little bit. Um, and that's as you get this pickup uh, in leisure services, which tend to just have lower uh, lower wage jobs. You know, but I think if you think more broadly here, uh, going out to the next year, you know, we should see wages accelerate. And that's because we've seen a broad pickup in productivity in the economy. You know, I should get paid for how productive I am and how much uh, prices are rising. So we should see wages accelerate. Um, you know, and, and and ultimately, the fact that the labor market is getting tighter, um, which which it is, uh, that should also put upward pressure on wages across a wider range of, of sectors than just kind of the low uh, you know, uh, low income and, and lower skilled jobs that we're seeing the, the biggest wage gains right now. Did you hear that, Tom? If you're more productive, you need to get paid more. That was really? from Tiffany. Uh, Manny better be listening this morning <laughs> as Tiffany Wilding delivers that sermon on what should happen in the labour market. Tiffany, talk to me about what should happen November 3rd. Matt Lizzetti was in your seat 24 hours ago talking up a rate hike of the Fed year end next year. Where are you and the team at the moment? Yeah, I mean, so so ultimately, we 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 are we think that you probably get a rate hike in the beginning of of twenty uh, twenty three, um, and and the the reason for that is is that we still believe that inflation is likely to moderate by the end of next year. Now there have been some uh, you know kind of a series of of shocks, if you will, uh, you know that have kept inflation you know more uh, higher for a little bit longer than I think people were expecting, um, you know. But we do ultimately think that that still comes down. That should give the Fed a little bit of breathing room uh, in the in the latter half of, of next year. Um, and as a result, you know, we think that they will ultimately it'll be 2023 before uh, before they hike. Tiffany, do you think that Fed officials appreciate the tightening of the labor market to its full? Um, yeah, so so I think that there are, you know, they've certainly highlighted what what we would agree are sort of quote temporary uh, trends that are re probably resulting in the labor market being tighter than it otherwise would be. And, you know, that's health, you know, just general anxiety around health. As a result of this pandemic, a lot of these service jobs, of course, are very public facing. And then, of course, there's been child uh, child care disruption. But I do think there are some, you know, kind of more medium term factors here that will take a little longer uh, to work themselves out. But ultimately, we, we do think that they will. And, and that's related to actually geography, which is kind of weird. But this work from home dynamic has really changed, you know, kind of the local market dynamics and where jobs are demanded. So they're maybe not 
uh, you're, not, you're not demanding as many jobs in some of these urban city centers. Um, you're, you're demanding those jobs out in kind of more of the suburban or maybe even the rural areas. And so we're getting that mismatch. So really the question is how long does it take for, for that labor to sort of migrate out? We're kind of, we're optimistic. Um, you know, we look at, at data on migration from the credit uh, reporting agencies, and it does suggest that, you know, some of these lower income zip codes and lower income folks are able to uh, move. Uh, we've seen excess moves from, from those zip codes. So that's good news. But ultimately, these things take a little time to work out. Um, and then and then also keep in mind that usually a hot labor market uh, does draw people back into the labor market. And we saw that uh, in, from, you know, 2017 to, to 2019. You know, so I, I do think labor markets will get tighter. Uh, we do think you get some wage inflation, you know, but again, I think all of this is will sort of be moderated to some extent by, by some labor supply gains that we're going to get next year as well. Tiffany, in the meantime, as we were talking about earlier today, the market expectation for five-year inflation, if you look at tips, uh, is actually climbed to the highest since 2005 at 2.8% north of that. Do you think that that is correct, that that is an accurate assessment of the five-year inflationary outlook? Well, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, obviously there's more going on with the, you know, the tips market uh, than just in expectations around the near term path of inflation. You know, but what I would say is I think that the path has become more uncertain lately. Um, and, and we believe that kind of over that five year time horizon, it's, it's going to remain uncertain. And that's because we think um, we're moving into what we're calling this kind of age of transition, where you have these kind of brown to green transitions, some, um, you know, trends towards deglobalization and more of a policy focus on inclusivity and that's both on the fiscal and monetary side you know and, and that it has the potential to produce some some upside um, in inflation but I would just also keep in mind here and I think this is much less talked about is is that there are also some downside risks to inflation as well as a result of, of this pandemic coming into the next five years and that's that we've seen productivity and innovation really get jump-started um, as a result of this pandemic you have the work from home, but then you also have trends towards digitization. Um, you know, and I think, you know, the other thing is, is we've also seen a big buildup in, in debt and leverage as a result of, of this pandemic. It's okay now because interest rates are low. But if we have a negative economic shock, it just increases the risk that you get this, uh, you know, sort of debt fuel deflationary environment. So I think there are risks to the upside and the downside here. You know, of course, the market's trying to uh, incorporate that, um, you know, but I think the other thing to keep in mind here is that if you look further out uh, in the tips market, kind of at the five year, five years forward, not to get too wonky, it is kind of trading right around the Fed's target, you know, maybe touch above. So I think the market's still giving the Fed a lot of credibility uh, around its longer term inflation goals. Tiffany, I was reading through the new outlook. Congratulations, by the way, because I don't know how much work goes into that for you and the team. And within that, it just seemed to me that as a team, you seem to think the Fed could be constrained down here, that it can't lift rates too much. What do you think that means for how long this cycle will be, the shape of this cycle, given how constrained you guys think the Fed is? Well, ultimately, we think this cycle, uh, you know, likely will be faster than than what we saw after the great financial crisis. You know, and part of that is just because of the the policy that we've seen the really extraordinary uh, policies. So it, instead of you know taking years to get back to trend growth after the 2008 recession, you know, we're likely going to do it, uh, you know, within within the next several quarters. And that's really a testament to the the amazing fiscal policy that we've gotten. You know, so just by that definition, this should be a faster, uh, you know, kind of a faster cycle. 
Um, you know, but in terms of a Fed policy, you know, here I really think that when you start to raise rates, uh, you know, as the tightening really gets in the cracks, as, as sort of was famously described, and, and really the question is, what is, you know, who is the kind of weakest link and is that weakest link systemically important? And that's really going to determine how much the Fed can Fed can tighten. And you've seen a lot of businesses that have had to take on more debt as a result of, of just the economic disruptions associated with this pandemic. And so when the Fed starts raising rates, we think that it's really going to turn out that the economy is, is more interest rate sensitive maybe than people thought. The other thing to keep in mind here is that the Fed's balance sheet is much larger yep. than it was pre-pandemic. And, and if they want to start to normalize their balance sheet, that just means they're going to hike the Fed funds rate a little bit less than they otherwise would have. So all of that suggests to us that you know the target rate in, in, in this cycle is probably going to be lower uh, even than it was last cycle. <clears throat> Tiffany, thank you. And congratulations from us and the team for 50 years of PIMCO. A lot of work's gone into that. Thank you. Steve Chevron's with us now. Portfolio manager at Federated Hermes. I won't speak for Steve. Steve can speak for himself. I bet. I do do too, Steve. Let's build on this. Margins are the epicenter of the earnings story. The difference between the companies that can execute and the companies that are struggling too, Steve. What's your take on that right now? No, I think this is this is the story. Um, it's hard to imagine the multiple going a lot higher next year. You've got growth slowing some. Inflation, I think, is is very much not transitory, uh, and I think it's going to be persistent. So your upside in the market is is your earnings growth. And, and right now, so far through the earnings season, it's 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 been pretty good. Um, and I think what we're looking for is how do the margins hold up? Are companies able to pass on price? And at a stock level, you really need to focus on companies that have pricing power. If they have pricing power, they can pass along those costs. Then you know what? Inflation's fine for them. Uh, if, if you can't and it starts eating away at your margin, I think you need to expect to get to get punished. Uh, and I think that's what we're looking at. And we're sifting out the winners and the losers right now. Steve, Steve Auth has a 20% return for the last three years in one of his portfolios, solidly upper quartile. And this speaks to Federated and Auth and the rest of you guys saying you've got to be in the market. Speak now to our audiences who are saying, I'm scared stiff. I can't participate. Yeah. Well, first, it's been an honor to grow under Steve. I I think he's terrific. But to, to that point, you've got to look in the market and say, where's the opportunity? So if we are in an inflationary environment, if that is going to be a bigger impact in the market, which we think it will, the question isn't, do I cut bait and run? The question is, which parts of the market, which trades do I put in place you know, that allow my portfolio to benefit from that trend or at least get hurt the least? And so you know, building up from fixed income, that shorter duration fixed income, something in the zero to three range, not as longer term. It means a little bit more high yield and EM debt where you've got shorter duration and more spread uh, tightening capabilities. It means equity income, dividend stocks to supplement your fixed income uh, because you're getting a higher yield and it's a little bit more inflation durable. And it means value cyclicals right now uh, where these companies can pass those prices uh, along. And then I think the last one is there's select opportunities in international in our view, particularly in the international small and mid-sized space. So you can't just look to run away because if you're not in the market, you won't achieve your goals. You won't get that compounding. But you got to look for the areas that are most advantaged. And that's what we're doing across our portfolios. Steve, at what point do uh, higher inflationary reads that we get on a repeated basis, this idea that perhaps it's not transitory, start to lead to higher yields that really uh, put a crimp in equity returns? Yeah, no, it's, it, it's a great question. I, I mean, I think it depends on what kind of equities you're talking about. I think you're going to see 
some of the growth names underperform sooner. Because remember, when you buy a growth company, you're buying it for their earnings out five or 10 years from now, and that can get inflated away. If I'm buying a value cyclical, I'm buying that because I think an oil price is going to be more tomorrow. Well, that's not going to get inflated away. Um, and I think that's the nuance there, Lisa. Yeah. Um, but, but we do have to watch. Yields that get too high do hurt multiples, and that could happen next year. What you just heard there, folks, from Chivaron is textbook, where growth is a longer-term x-axis and value is a shorter-term view. John, did I hear earlier on bonds that Chivaron recommended a triple leveraged all cash fund? I'm not sure that's where I, it was going. That, that Steve, do you want to that, finish there? Was that what you were saying? That That's fake news. I'm calling you out there. <laughs> fake news. Steve, thank you, buddy. Always good to catch thank you up. Thank you very much. Steve Chevron there of Federated Hermes. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.